Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Sands Hall is the author of the memoir, Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology, finalist for the Northern California Book Award, and a publisher's weekly best book in religion and spirituality. She is also the author of the novel, Catching Heaven, a Random House Reader's Circle Selection, and Tools of the Writer's Craft. She teaches for the Iowa Summer Writing Festival and for the community of writers at Squaw Valley, among other conferences. She lives in Nevada City, California. Find out more at sandshall.com. Now, yeah. For the last 20 years, Maggie Rowe has performed in and produced the Comedy Central stage show since spin. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Los Angeles' longest-running spoken word show, having taken the reins from the creator Jill Soloway in 2002. She has sold pilots to Disney, Nickelodeon, and HBO, and has written for Arrested Development and flaked for Netflix. Ooh. (laughs) Wow. She is the author of Sin Bravely, a memoir of spiritual disobedience, which she is developing as a television show with NBC Universal. Her new memoir, Easy Street, will be released next year. Are y'all ready? I'm ready. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming out, everyone. Uh, I'd like to tell you how I met Sands and came to read her memoir and became such a fan. We did a literary conference in San Francisco called Litquake. We were part of the same show, and before the show started, we were talking about our memoirs. Mine mainly has to do with leaving evangelical Christianity and figuring out what I could salvage from it, and Sands has to do with leaving Scientology and figuring out what she can reclaim from it. So we just, we got to talking and had such a great conversation, and then I read her memoir, and there were so many similarities uh, from what I went through. But the thing that I thought was most interesting, because what I have heard about Scientology is all the nasty, crazy shit. I've heard about the the musical chairs and the toothbrush, like all <laughs> toothbrushes. All the <laughs> <laughs> I always heard stories about they had to clean toilets with toothbrush, you know. And I and I've always had this attitude: Why in the world would anybody get into this in the first place? And I really didn't have much of uh, knowledge about it. But when I read Sand's book, I was like, I get it. There are, I think, some pretty darn amazing techniques that, of course, are in other things. They're in psychology and philosophy. But somehow, the way that some of these things are said, I felt like were really clear and penchant in a way that... I can see why uh, uh, people can fall into it. Uh, Also the value of words, uh, study of derivations of words, and the specificity of language that a group of people can uh, have in common and learn how to communicate with each other. 
So I have a bunch of questions that I'd like to ask Sands, and uh, she might read a little bit from her book, and maybe all might have some questions afterwards. So I guess my first thing that I would like to ask, if you were to take one thing from Scientology that you felt was a valuable thing that made it worth, in some ways, having your so-called lost decade, mm -hmm. What what would be the um, if if it's the baby if we're gonna throw out the bathwater is there a baby? <laughs> <laughs> That's such great. I will say same thing about that lit quake encounter. We just jabbered up a storm, <laughs> and then um, I read her memoir and and said, let's go on the road. So this is our <laughs> this is our going on the road. Um, I would say it's true what it is that Maggie points out. One of the things in writing my memoir, um, although I hadn't read a lot of other memoirs by former Scientologists when I began my own, I was really conscious that there was this sort of sense when I, I couldn't even say that I was writing a memoir. When people would say, what are you writing? And I'd say a memoir and they'd say about what? And I'd say, I mean, I just was so mortified by the subject matter. I just couldn't get the word out. And eventually I was able to, of course, articulate that. But I realized that part of what I wanted to do was to bring the reader along with me on what it is with this particular soul, this particular life, this particular series of circumstances that made such a path um, not only intriguing, but one that I kind of, of my own accord, jumped into and began to walk. And so that was important to me, and I think one of the best compliments I received, this is just e exemplary, but I mean, just my agent, my uh, editor said it to me, but other people have said it to me as well, but she said it was the best version. She said that she had gone home to her, her uh, fiancé and said, I don't want to keep reading Sands's book because she makes Scientology sound really intriguing. <laughs> um, and amongst those things was to try, indeed, to bring the reader along on uh, those aspects that I found fascinating. And just briefly, uh, first of all, was something called the communications communication course. And I thought, I communicate just fine. I don't need any of that help. But I learned things there like here are the things people don't pay attention to when communicating, like interrupting or not acknowledging and things. That was important. But I would say ultimately the most valuable thing for me, and I know it drives a lot of, drove a lot of former Scientologists crazy, the exact same thing that I adored most, was being in the course room studying. It was where I learned I was a scholar. It was where I learned that I love sitting at a table, going down rabbit holes of information. I remember one particular one to do with Israel, not knowing why is it even called that and what was it, and uncovering this entire thing about Jacob wrestling with the struggling angel, all oh, the struggling with I God. I will not let you go until you bless me. Exactly. You see, she knows. <laughs> and uh, and above all, of course, the whole thing of looking for me of of that emphasis on clearing words. That it was in knowing the derivation of a word that the entirety of it would sort of pop open. It was sort of a little bit like opening 
a Christmas present. I would love, I would save the derivation for it. And, you know, and that says a lot about me, I'm aware. But <laughs> that was one of my favorite things and one of the things that I have taken uh, with me ever since. There isn't probably a day past that I'm very grateful for now for phones where I'm looking up on dictionary.com on my phone, looking up some derivation or something. And I, I'm, I remain extremely grateful for that. So that's one. It, the other one that I thought was interesting is uh, there's meditation, but they will do meditation facing each other, which through all of my Zen stuff, like we face the wall, we'll face, but I've never sat and directly faced another human being. And it seems like that's a good way to develop empathy. And it's a practice that I haven't done before. Well, we did laugh today that we have done it. It was oh, mirrors. acting class. It was true. mirrors. <laughs> Right. You know, mirrors, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Trust exercises, absolutely, yes. Um, well, and of course, it would never be called meditation. They were called training routines, and they were teaching you very specific things about communicating, which in turn were teaching you very specific things about the form of counseling called auditing. And of course, that was the way to get you very, very involved in the stuff. But that was a pretty valuable and intense thing, and I remember figuring out a lot from sitting opposite somebody staring into their eyes for a long period of time. You, you begin to notice what's around them, you begin to notice their physiognomy and their face, and it's not always pleasant, but it was extremely, it made me pay attention to faces in a way that I hadn't before. I was saying to Maggie earlier, like I'm much more conscious now when someone's telling, say, a story that is freaking them out a little bit and suddenly like the, their face will get a bit pale underneath their, their maybe the, the blush they have on their cheeks or these two spots will burn on their cheekbones and I'm kind of conscious in a way I don't know if I otherwise would be. So that's a, a very interesting aspect of things. Yeah, am I talking too close to my mic? Thank you. Thanks, Skip. <laughs> Such a friend. <laughs> I could just hear that our voices were very different in the way they were coming across. So I believe the big sticking point for you, which was the biggest sticking point for me, well, except for the health thing, <laughs> but in Christianity was the evangelical Christianity, the way I was taught it, is it is the one and only way. And every other religion, they would give a, you know, that phrase damning with faint praise, you know, so it would be like, yes, other religions have once in a while had something reasonable to say. Like that was like the most that they would give it. But it was like, this is the one path. And that's the exact same thing mm -hmm. that they say in Scientology. It's mm -hmm. not like this is one of many. This is the mm -hmm. one and all others, the only. Are, the only. The only. Um, is left. And I, I feel like from the very beginning, you kind of buckled against that mm -hmm. idea. That was your first objection, mm -hmm. but then you kind of pushed that mm -hmm. down uh, for the community, for uh, the, you know, the kind of interest in these techniques. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it is to me, I agree completely, that very strange thing that all religions organized seem to share, which is this sense that this is the only way, and you're damned if you pursue any other way. Uh, reading Maggie's just terrific memoir and very funny memoir, till it's not funny, but then it's funny again, just <laughs> to say. Um, 
uh, I, I was quite struck by that also, the degree of, especially, of course, in the Christian world, how it's like we're supposed to have this sort of compassion towards others, at least that what we understand, and there is none for those that are not following the path. And there was something quite similar. I mean, it's like we Scientologists didn't have so much as a hell except that you would not escape the penal colony that is Earth and you wouldn't be able to soar to planets without your body if you wanted to. I mean, that's really uh, simplifying things. But there was a form of if you don't keep following this particular path, you are damned. It's a very similar idea. And I think it's a, just an awful aspect of things. In fact, I think that I'm just going to tell this story. It's like um, when I was trying desperately to leave Scientology and I had been accepted by the Iowa Writers Workshop and in many ways I had applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop as a way to geographically put some distance between me and this city where I was then living and um, I began to sit. Um, I had done transcendental meditation when I was really young. Those of us that were at ACT in those years, everybody got their mantra. And I did a lot of that for years, but I'd really let it slip away because you can't mix practices in Scientology, and that was a practice you couldn't mix. And um, so I began to pursue that again and read books on Buddhism and really go... And I was sitting uh, pretty steadily, and a Roshi came to town and was going to give this weekend-long seminar workshop. And I sat beside him. And, and, you know, that phrase, monkey mind, is so amazing because, you know, I could not actually make my body sit still for those eight hours beside him and then for the next day. And it was just, I can't even imagine what he must have thought. But I got an opportunity to have a private consultation with him um, we could have this little extra thing at the end of the Sunday. And I, I went, and uh, we had to prostrate ourselves fully three times. And I'm, like, thinking, what the fuck am I doing? And it's like sands in Scientology, they hold on to tin cans, you know. It's like nothing can be stranger than that. So I prostrated myself three times and sat opposite and poured out the fact that I was so torn. I wanted to leave Scientology. I was thinking it was not a good thing for me. I felt constrained and confined, and I was miserable. And yet I felt like I was gonna, my soul was damned. They'd really convinced me of that. And, uh, and I poured it out, and he said, it was a very, very long silence. And he said, it doesn't matter. And my heart just was, oh my God, what do you mean it doesn't matter? Because what I wanted was him to say Buddhism. Buddhism is the only way. It's the way, the truth, and the light, and the only way you're going to escape these terrible feelings. And he said, if Scientology is your way, then you must return to it. And if it is not your way, then you must not. I was so mad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just this, because he said exactly the right thing. But we still want you. that. You as much do. as we object to this idea that there's one and only way, it's still somehow appealing on some it level. It is. The sense that there's go, right. This is it. This is what you need to do. Yeah, it's the old, like, you, you know, mom put out my, please put out my dress to wear tomorrow. <laughs> I don't want to have to make that decision. Hey, you know, right. you were yes. five. That was so nice. Yes. But there's nobody doing that. And I think that wonderful... It was part of what woke me up to, once again, even for, further and more deeply, to the idea of how uh, weird it was for something to set itself up as the only way. 
that that is such an odd thing and that um, partly the degree of, of uh, joy that comes in when you're just figuring it out for yourself. You know, it's hard, but you're figuring it out for yourself yeah. and you're putting together a bunch of, oh my God, a bunch of practices to figure out what you're going to do with your own life and that's yours. That was really huge. And that idea, there's um, uh, a woman named Mirabai Starr who talks about being um, spiritually promiscuous and that that has been considered a bad thing. You know, there's this whole idea, well, you know, you can't just take part of it. And I always be like, of course you can. Of course you can. We all make, but there's this idea that that's not allowed. Uh, and that's true of Scientology and evangelicalism and a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of other. The other thing that we were talking about is the double bind that gets created when you're not allowed to doubt a system that you're in, that the very doubt itself is the crime, and that's what keeps you in. But you talk about uh, nattering and overt mm -hmm. and withhold. Yeah, well, it's that uh, I, there are some very precious people in the audience fellow former Scientologists, so it's really kind of difficult to talk because they're they were in even longer, like in some cases much longer than I was, and so forgive me if I'm getting things wrong, you guys, but thank you. Um, but um, absolutely, there is something, um, and it's in many ways it was really, again, quite comforting to have this little slim book called The Ethics Conditions, and you could open that up and figure out whether you were in confusion or you were in... Uh, doubt or you were in treason or you were in normal operation and they had these little formulas that you could work your way out and it was just these little steps to follow and mm. it was so orderly this is the thing that totally got me involved in Scientology my brother had a terrible terrible accident and I was in this incredible vertigo in my life and the orderliness mm. of this religion was so appealing to me so this little book and I, I remember being in doubt a hundred thousand times and using this little doubt formula to try and get out of it and having this thing of how can you actually use a doubt formula that is created by L. Ron Hubbard to persuade yourself that you should leave the very religion that you, I mean, it was like the Mobius <laughs> twist of logic is unbelievable. And um, also uh, in something, again, one of those interesting things that has a very positive side is being aware this was, you know, somewhat, I kind of understood it already, but really brought to my attention the idea that if you're really criticizing somebody else and you have a real problem with them, that it's really smart to look to yourself and figure out what you might be doing that's similar. And um, there's... Or to justify, right? Or, that you're or, saying, yes. like, if I've done something bad to somebody, I'm more likely to talk shit about them to go, well, they're really shitty. Yes, that's so the they bad deserved thing. Yes. That, yes. that nasty thing that yes. I did. Yes, and justifying it. But and at the same it. time, if you spend any long enough in Scientology, there is absolutely this thing that grabs hold and said, why are you criticizing that person? What have you done that's similar? You feel it's really, it can be, and it's, we were talking about the difference between gossip you know, sharing some slightly unsavory stories about a friend versus, you know, what is that gossip versus nattering, which is that the Scientology phrase for what we're talking about. But that has been a very useful little thing. It's like, oh, I really feel quite irritated at this person, or I'm really mad, or I am tempted, or I am talking about her behind her back and saying things that really I should go and say to her. And there is this little, like, could you take a look? 
And that's, a, that's another little useful thing that I am not unhappy to have, you know. But that uh, uh, one of the things just to say that I so appreciated about um, Maggie's luminous and wonderful memoir is that what catches her up is that she feels like she doesn't have enough faith that whatever it is that um, she should believe or has she actually accepted Jesus into her heart and has she been saved, there's the constant questioning, the constant doubting, the constant worrying. Um, and to, to get to be inside of such an articulate and funny uh, mind as she explains this to us is so, um, it's so moving but it's that same issue of doubting. I feel like faith is a verb. It's not, but it should be. We're faithing when we try to have faith in something. And that takes a lot of work. And I was so often in horrible, 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 constant doubt. I remember crying so much in those years in Scientology that not once but numerous times I wet an entire dish rag with my tears, just, you know, talking to dear, the man known as Sky in my book, um, and just his endless patience and my thinking, something's really wrong with this. But don't doubt. But don't doubt. Don't have a doubt. And they hit, you talked about there being this thing called roller coastering, that if mm -hmm. you were having doubt, and then you were confident in it, and then you without, it's like, well, that's, a, this is a major problem, roller coaster. Absolutely. So it takes away any kind of going outside. Right, and uh, very much in Scientology, if you are uh, what they call roller coastering, it means that almost always there is somebody in your environment who doesn't want you to be a Scientologist or is otherwise a suppressive person. Which and which my, you they tried to accuse my parents, <laughs> did you know all about that? <laughs> and, it's, and they tried to tell me my parents were suppressive people. And of course, what was true was every time I spoke to my parents, I was really, really unhappy because those of you who've read the book or those of you that know my parents know that they are, you know, in most ways, wonderful people. And I just, I just want to go have a glass of wine with them. You know, I want to go and sit on their deck and talk about, you know, Greek myths. Mm -hmm. And instead, I'm moving into a course room and studying the work of L. Ron Hubbard. And of course, I would cry after speaking with them. You know, it'd be just the sound of the Nana Muscuri's music on the speakers in mm -hmm. the background would make me cry because it was this world I'd left behind. So here's what happens then. You stop being in touch. There is a form of disconnection, which is what Scientology wants. It's a form of disconnection because you realize I'm unhappy all the time and I'm not so unhappy if I'm not being all roused up by these feelings I shouldn't be having. So it's terribly insidious the way that works, really horrible. On the other hand, and I think it's one of the great contrasts between our two books, Maggie's parents were nothing but seemingly very supportive, they would say, oh, honey, of course you're saved. Of course you're going to heaven. And she'd be going, but what? She's at the age How of seven, know? she buys the biggest 
Bible she can find that has four Bibles in it and all kinds of concordances and explanations. And she, she finds these phrases, you know, he's going to spew you out of your, Jesus will spew you out of his mouth if you are, are lukewarm. And she's trying to ask her mother about what that means. And her mother's like, you're not lukewarm, you're fine. And they, you know, they come across in this really wonderful they, way. But know. they had, uh, you know, they had, I had seen them be wrong about things. Like they thought that Mary Tyler Moore came on after Dick Van Dyke and they were wrong. So how do I know that <laughs> they're going to be right about this lukewarm thing? I had many <laughs> examples where they didn't know things. Um, question. Um, after leaving, did you feel a lack of purpose or a loss of purpose or was there, obviously it was a great relief leaving, but was there a sense of loss <sighs> at the same time? It was horrible. <laughs> it was so horrible. I think the real horrible part though was the friendships I'd made and the community I was forced to leave behind. Um, that disconnection thing. And um, yes, it was a terrible, terrible time. And I, 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 very interestingly, both Maggie and I have in our memoirs imagery of a man going, hers is a different movie than mine, a man going outside of a spaceship to fix something, the oxygen tube being severed and falling into endless space <laughs> with limbs flailing. <laughs> Both of us use that image to describe our horror at what was going on with our spiritual sense of self. And that was very true for me those years. I was still in, I had trotted across the river in Iowa City and was getting a second, why not, MFA in uh, theater arts. I'd finished the one in fiction. Uh, and <laughs> I knew I liked to study, and uh, that's what I was going to do. And um, that, that terrible, terrible time, the only thing that really salvaged me at that time was the, um, the classes and studying and the new friendships I was beginning to make. But it was, in fact, I was sure I was going to. I had the conversation with the rabbi. Everything was, and I actually go down to Chicago where there is an org, and I go into the org and I ask to see the ethics officer. Yes, indeed, there is such a thing as that title. And I pour out to him my dilemma uh, for the 468th time, and he says, well, you should study this, the, the data to do with this potential trouble source and suppressive person issue. So I go and I sit at the little table in the course room, and it's just like the course room except different tables, of course, that I've left behind in Los Angeles, and I open the dictionary to start looking up words, and I just put my head on the, and I said, I've done this, it's not right. So I go, I'm staying with some friends of friends and friends. The wife's a Scientologist, and the husband is not. She's crying all the time, because she's just come back from doing some level, and she wants to just go back and be in this clean space that is known as flag. And She's crying, and her ch child comes in on his on his little pogo stick or whatever the equivalent is. Says, "Stops crying, mom!" And and this other kid comes in and says, "Mom, I need a new hockey stick." And there's peanut butter on the counter and bagels mm -hmm. spread everywhere. And the husband's in the other room watching a TV a ball game with a beer. And I got in my car and I drove back to Iowa City, and it was like, what's so bad? about the peanut butter knife stuck in the jar 
and about the bagels across the counter and the broken hockey stick and the muddy galoshes in the ante room. That is living. That is life. And why does it feel like you're supposed to rise above it all the fucking time? That was probably the biggest release I had. Yeah, where it was I like think you wrote about it being it's a series of moments. Yes, it's it really click, is. Click, Click, mm -hmm. click, 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 and we tend to look at it in this big overarching mm -mm. thing mm -mm. as opposed to... Mm -hmm. And it was still happened. horrible. I yeah, was still... Yeah. I didn't have a spiritual path that had seemed to... You know, it, I'd made it matter. And, you know, Buddhism, it was just... Well, I should say meditating was great, but there you are trying to breathe and forgetting to, and your mind's <laughs> doing all this <laughs> stuff. And, you know, and uh, it, was a, it was a drifty few years. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, was, it was bad. But, you know, then... I went to Nevada City, and there was African dance and Vipassana meditation, and those two things awesome. I put a little life together. That's you know? great. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't I ask one more question, and then maybe if you want to read a short passage, and you can open okay. it up to questions. Uh, does that sound good, or is that a good time thing? Sure. What, what time is it? Do you want to talk about it? Okay. 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 So we're on. We're on track. Actually, you know. Um, I'm happy to read, but really, would you read a little short section? Oh, I would really love you to. And here's the thing. You know how I told my little story about the rabbi? One of the other similarities I love about our book is that both of us have, at a certain point, this wise man who is able to shift our thinking in really substantial ways. Um, Maggie, in her book, she's young, and she's got this thing that we understand is called scrupulosity, where you're just looking at everything you're doing all the time, and is it enough? And she's, she's literally driven herself around the bend, and she checks herself into a Christian mental institution, and so, which is, you just are dying reading. a little reading. bit of a contradiction. Oh my there. God. <laughs> the uh, sign And so little by, you're, you're just going crazy with the things that she goes through, and it's, as I say, it's funny, but not, and then, she eventually makes her way to this wonderful doctor named Dr. Denton, um, and he asks her really great questions. And just apropos of what we're talking about a bit to do with faith, I wonder if you would just read that one little short oh, section. Yes. Uh, I think I have it. If you I don't have it, it's, uh, I think it's I 244 maybe. Oh, oh, oh. All right. It couldn't possibly be. Yep, okay, I found okay. it. Um, okay. Um, I sit down. Dr. Benton looks at me, considering. You think God is going to punish you for looking out for your eternal destiny? Maybe, yes. Who knows? I certainly would have put in, I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> Dr. Benton smiles at the phrase, put it past him, then leans in. How much do you know about Martin Luther? Uh, Protestant Reformation, 95 Theses nailed to the church door. Excellent. Now, what do you know about his early life? Well, nothing really. Okay, well, Martin Luther worried about his salvation, probably more than even you worry about yours, a feat not to be scoffed at. <laughs> he spent hours in confession every day, confessing every little act he felt was not up to the Lord's standards. He had marathon contrition sessions, splintering his sins into a thousand different components. In penance, he would whip himself, sleep out in the snow in his skivvies, eat the dirt under his fingernails for dinner, that is true, and still he wasn't sure he'd been forgiven. 
scrupulosity, Dr. Benton said. Martin Luther had this big revelation. He came to the conclusion that doing good works wouldn't save him, only God's grace was sufficient, and he posted those famous theses. After that, he came out with his most controversial doctrine, the doctrine of pecca fortiter, or the brave sin. Luther wrote, sin bravely in order that you may know the forgiveness of God. What does that mean? It means Martin Luther felt that the most important thing for a Christian to understand is that he is forgiven, even if that means sinning. Okay, I say still holding myself tight, but if, if I'm just believing in God because I don't want to go to hell, isn't that fire insurance? I think you should consider laying off the Bible for a while. <laughs> lay off reading it. Lay off doing what it says. Sin whatever sins you want, including coming to God for fire insurance. Don't try to change your motivation. I truly believe the most important thing for you now is to understand God's grace. This is the first time I've heard Dr. Benton say he believes something. Normally he just asks questions, proposes possibilities. I think it's more important that you repair your relationship with God than that you follow the letter of the law. Yeah, but I can't just start sinning. Why not? What would happen? <laughs> well, it would be wrong. And then what would happen? Well, I guess I hesitate. People could be hurt. Do you think you'd do things to hurt people if the Bible didn't tell you not to? Do you think you'd murder someone? No, I smile. Probably not. Do you think you'd assault toddlers or the elderly? Would you release a deadly gas on the subway when it had reached the maximum level of occupancy and could conceivably cause the most harm? No. Would you run up to long-haired, scraggly men and yell, dirty hippie, or pen a note to the back of a fat woman that says, blubber butt? I laugh, no, I wouldn't. Okay, well then, I think the world is safe from your sins. <laughs> And what young Maggie does to sin bravely is just a wonderful part of the book. It's absolutely just, no, you have to read. It's just absolutely delightful. It's just wonderful. Yeah, that the, what, the, what, the, what the brave sin is is so great. Yeah, yeah, really delightful. So I guess yes, Does questions? anyone have any questions for Sands uh, about her experience, about Scientology? I married Jamie Font, uh, the bass player, in a, yeah, I love Pitter Patter. He was very handsome. <laughs> in uh, 82, and I went to Iowa in 89, and then I was one more summer I came back, and then I kind of finally realized I had to leave 90. So it was about seven years total that I was um, kind of engaged with the, with the, in the 80s, yeah. So L. Ron Hubbard died during those years. And I really thought that the religion would just close up shop and I really wanted it to. I was just like, closed for business is what I wanted, but it didn't happen, no. You were also talking about how when Miscavige took, yes. up, like the, that, it, it, it got perhaps more. I really felt that myself, um, the man that I call Sky then, um, we would often, like there's a story I tell in the memoir about a Thursday night, people who are Scientologists know this, Thursday at two o'clock, there's always this, you gotta put your stats in for the week, and Wednesday night, 
as often as not, we'd get a phone call and say, is there anybody you could bring in to take a course, or is there any money you could give us or something? And so one night we get such a phone call, Tom answers, uh, Sky, excuse me, mm -hmm. and um, uh, he listens, and we're supposed to go to some event and um, that's about to happen, these big, huge events that take place at the Sheraton, and I don't want to, I hate those events. And, uh, but Tom, Sky says, uh, uh, sure, I can make a couple of calls for you. Um, just to boost the stats. So he puts down the phone, he calls my machine, which of course those were the days of machines, and he says, hey, Sands, <laughs> there's, a, there's a thing going on on Saturday, you should be there, See, uh, feel better, you know. I was weeping, no doubt. And um, he went over to my phone, picked it up and called his own machine, did the exact same thing, and said, I've made a couple of calls, which <laughs> just was one of the things I just loved about him, was that sense of humor, right? So, but. We ended up going to this, and I remember it was not long after, you know, Hubbard had died, maybe about a year, and there was a very different feeling in that room. I did feel as if I was being observed and watched, and there was a recording sense of going on. I, one of the things I think that I kept with Scientology as long as I did, there was a kind of this funky, easy, lovely quality, and the people were all wonderful. I mean, they were wonderful people, you know? You just didn't feel this sense yeah. of... You know, and that was, I realized, it wasn't until I was writing my memoir that I realized that I left about two years after Miscavige rose up. So I think that's really telling, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious for both of you what your spiritual life is now. Mm -hmm. I was talking about, like, one thing that I do think I salvaged or what was good is I was, uh, I did have a, the spiritual notion that changing my perspective will change my experience from Christianity. And, and now I'm a member of a Zen Buddhist organization with Conrad, who used to be a Scientologist as well. Um, uh, so, I, so I have a daily practice. And the thing I do like about Buddhism is it's never going to say it's the only way. It is a path that is great for many people. Um, and, and it also doesn't involve trying to believe something that I don't believe, <laughs> trying to yank something around. It, it doesn't have to do with the afterlife. It doesn't ha it's just present, and how can I be more present and more aware and more open and empathetic? Um, so I guess that's my, mm -hmm. that's my spiritual life. Mm -hmm. so. Well, in many ways, it's um, sitting. Yeah, I don't have a, I don't, I'm not a necessarily a Buddhist, but I s try to sit every day, and I, it really makes a difference. Yep, and so that would be somewhat similar. Um, we're sitters. We're sitters. <laughs> we just sit on our butts. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> sit bravely. Exactly. That's a great Squat question, bravely. though. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yes, Kim. Well, that's really true. That has to do with that thing I, um, I, I, I talked a little bit about already, which is that if you're around people that distress you and don't want you to be a Scientologist, you tend, you, you know, you tend eventually to not really want to hang out with them very much because they kind of get you sent to the ethics officer <laughs> because you're in tears again. Mm -hmm. So there was that aspect of it, certainly, that narrowed down. I have two very, very dear friends in the room right now that I just didn't see very often at all. I mean 
dear Marilyn and dear Lori. They were just, they were there for me. But, you know, I had to very carefully, Marilyn and I would always have wine with lunch, one of my favorite things. And we, I would have to completely negotiate my schedule on course to make sure it wouldn't be within 24 hours of my next time on course, which I, which I managed to do, you know. And she was always very, you know, supportive of what I was trying to just, you know. And Lori had been an amazing friend in Colorado before she moved here and became one of the great actresses of, our, of the city. Um, she too, I just didn't see her all that often. It really cut those people out. Um, that said, um, I loved the friends I made. We were all working very hard on our arts of various kinds. Uh, they were absolutely, when you say that, Skip, real, I realize, reinforced by our, you know, we were all at Celebrity Center and on course together, and there was our gatherings. If a stranger had come in to listen, they wouldn't have understood a thing. I think that's true of any Scientology party, because we'd be t speaking in all the acronyms and stuff and no nomenclature. nomenclature. Um, I do think one of the most brilliant things that Hubbard did, um, and I think, I, I think now it was extremely purposeful, was understanding how language ties people together and that if you have your own language, uh -huh. you feel a sense of the elite almost. There's a, you're in a club. And I don't, I didn't want a sense that I was elite in any way necessarily, but there was that sense of belonging to something that I think contributed to that sense that, you know, we talked to each, about, to each other about our problems. We did, you know, some sometimes self-analysis. We did work, you know, we worked with each other in those ways. And we were, had shared our goals and we were working on them together. And there was something quite positive about that and was very hard to leave behind. Very hard to leave behind. Yeah. So... If I could say anything, I think I just knew I was not where I should be and, it, and that I was missing some th other life that I should be leaving, leading. And that, that would just would, I mean, it would be the simplest thing watching a you know, commercial on the television and you know, the image of the Parthenon would come up and it would, ah, you know, <laughs> that was the end for me, you know, and it was a lot about, about that and it was a, you know, in Maggie, in her book, details about a kind of a clearly an obsessive thing she got into about her faith. But I think in both cases, there was just an obsession that took hold. That was, you know, for me, it was like, I am where I need to be. And partly it's because I really love Sky. He was, it seemed like a really good partner. Like I finally had found a guy that seemed like a really good guy. And, you know, he was, and we did really well together in the sense of humor, you know, which is so wait, great. And he was passionate. And he was about passionate. It he was, he that was hard. Fed into yes, that. Yes, it was like, I, there was no way to not be with him if I was not a Scientologist. And that, we bumped up against that so often. I think that was a lot of the grief, too. It's a very interesting question, but it was funny recently. I had some sort of slightly bad news about something I can't remember. And I, I, have, I realized I haven't cried in a really long time. It's just not. And I lay down, I was in the middle of doing some yoga, and I went down when I got this phone call, which I answered, which I shouldn't have, but I did. Anyway, so I lay back down on my yoga mat, you know, 
and I started to cry, and then I burst out laughing. It was like, <laughs> why are you going to do this to yourself? It doesn't matter. You're not in Afghanistan being raped. You know, it's like, stop it. You know, it was great. It was just, I was so grateful for some sort of yeah, yeah. recognition that that grief, I just hope I never go there again. I just lived in that place. It was horrid. Yeah. So, yeah. Any other questions? Well, it's such an interesting question. And there was me media out there, but I realized I could not read it, or I would just be absolutely horrified. I mean, I just I was a mess, and so it's like read what you want. You know, the tr what is true for you is true for you. When you have lost that, you've lost everything. Quote from L. Ron Hubbard. But really, it's just read what I say you should read. Really, but anyway, um, I think. Bottom line, because I have thought about this a lot, and I've spoken actually about this with Tony Ortega, who runs the Underground Bunker, that terrific sort of website blog that's about exposing all things Scientological. And um, he has stories, like people come in and they're, they're on, they are in Sea Org within three days of being interviewed. I mean, they're just this, I think it's purpose. I think it has to do with meaning. It has to do with some the big hole, you know, when when you see Scientologists on the street corners with their their little um, clipboards and they're asking you such a clever question: Are you really happy? What is happy? What is really? I mean, let's just start there. But anyway, um, that their job really is to discover what they call your ruin. So it could be you're having money problems, or problems with your spouse, or problems with your child, or problems with your family, and they will always be able to solve it. That's that's the thing. Oh well, we have a course for that. Oh, we could do that with auditing. So I think their their ability to find the hole that needs to be filled is really really they've figured it out, and um, that to me is what I think makes people. And also, it sounds really good when you're gonna save the planet from war, and you're going to lead people, you know. It sounds really good. It sounds, it's, it's. Clear the whole planet. Clear the planet. <laughs> you know, which I sort of thought of clear cutting when I first heard that phrase. But, you know, it's like, and that's not what's meant. It's like get everybody's minds to not, you know, to be able to process things without. Reactivity. Reactivity and no hatred and no fear. It all sounds so wonderful, and you want to believe it. And um, and I think that keeps a lot of people in too. You know, I mean, they would have many, but I think that's a lot of it is purpose and and community. And once you're in, how hard it is to escape yeah. and peer pressure. peer pressure. But the the joining is really interesting. Mm. Or to be in the, in the pantheon of Scientology survival <laughs> stories. 
stories. It was on my mind an enormous amount um, because I both wanted to be fair to what Scientology was, how I came to it, what I felt I had gained from those years. And of course, that's the reclaiming of the title, very important, as I say. For a, I begin the book by saying for, I pretended for a decade, a decade of my life hadn't happened. And that was true. I was absolutely mortified that I had done, chosen to do that with 10 years of my, almost, of my life. Um, but I also felt it incumbent upon me to be sure to lay out the things that are really problematic and to explain how there is this little helmet that you kind of put on of your own accord that has you know little tweedly dees that go in your ears and little ocular things like when you go to the eye doctor that you kind of skew the way you view the world. And you, but you put this helmet on and you keep it on and that I try to make that idea clear to a reader um, so that there's a sense, I, I, I would love, my real hope was that it would get to people who are on the fence, that it would help them to realize, no, I can leave and there is life after. I think one of the most intriguing things is how many people have written me to really say, you have taught me to look at a decade or years I thought was lost in a whole new way. And that was not what I ex expected at all to come from it. But that's been the, we were talking about the blessing of the letters that we receive. And that, you know, a review is a lovely thing, but a letter from somebody. So I don't know if that answers the question, but, you know, that's, that's it was a, a balance of trying to be fair to the church and my friends and, the, you know, and also to, to also really lay out the dastardly stuff that is the Sea Org and the, especially the children and the, in, the basically slave labor and all those things which I didn't really see it at the time. It was all just teary teary, you know, but um, as I got further and further away and was able to examine, was like, oh my God, what did you close your eyes to? And trying to make that clear in the book. Um, I agree that it's there. Um, when I was at Celebrity Center, uh, you know, I stopped yesterday. It was like my heart was pounding. I stopped yesterday and stood opposite the building, and I had worked at $2 bills. Was, yeah, I right, know. <laughs> and um, it's, yeah, well, that's the AO. That's the advanced uh, work. Uh, yeah, I saw, am I pointing in the right direction? Anyway. Um, but, because um, I'd worked at $2 Bills, which is a restaurant right across the street from CC, and so I was sort of trying to be there, really trying to try to find my old self, because other than the day, Marilyn, that you so sweetly drove me around CC, and I was in the seat going like, oh my God, oh my God, I was so scared that day. Um, but um, even in my own experience, as funky as it was in that time period, and not as, I think, as, um, there wasn't quite so much, m there was money, but it's nothing like it is now and how important that is. I was aware that um, 
there was, I came in as a kind of celebrity because I'd worked at the Old Globe Theater and I'd worked at Ashland and I had been on Lou Grant. Some people are old enough in this room to know what that means. And um, I was somebody who had a pretty good career. And I very, my status definitely went down because I didn't do any work. And I stopped being, a, a, you know, I went to celebrity but I was no longer this. Oh. So that was, I remember a specific moment when I realized, you know, it's a little bit like um, Handmaid's Tale. All of a sudden I was expected to clean the latrine. Not really, but there was <laughs> a kind of, yeah, with a toothbrush. But there was, there was a little sense of having really been demoted as a celebrity, and I was no longer in this, you know, the Karen Blacks and the Chick Koreas and the Jamie Fonts, you know. So it was interesting. It definitely. Oh, shit, of course, you know. <laughs> well, but also I will say that I was aware of a discomfort the entire time. Hubbard says, a culture is only as great as its dreams, and its dreams are dreamed by artists. Mm -hmm. And for an artist, that's really nice, because it's very easy to feel solipsistic. What we're doing, I mean, I'm flinging my little sand around in my sandbox, you know, it's like, it's very easy to feel that way. So it's like, oh, okay, my dreams are gonna help this culture. So the idea of a celebrity, you know, whether it's the perfume or the Rolex or the religion, that the celebrity wears the watch and they're famous because of it. And they wear the perfume and they're famous because of it. And they practice the religion. They're not the other way around, right? We're asking you to wear our watch because you're a celebrity, you know? So that whole thing really bothered me anyway, that to be a celebrity, it was all about championing their religion as a celebrity, and I never got comfortable with that. I was, I was very shy, stood back. And the, you didn't do any of the proselytizing? No, I was unable to do that, and uh, the one time I was, the song of mine was sung for a big rally, I couldn't actually get my voice out. Um, I was so mortified that even though it was a dream of mine to have my song sung in such a rally, you know, something to do with freedom, but um, I literally lost my voice and lost it for years actually afterwards, which is the whole thing is really interesting. Was yeah. I was never that degree of a celebrity. I was minor celebrity. I wasn't. So it, that that never made a difference. I was I was a. No, that had nothing to do with it. Not a single thing, because that whole idea made me so uncomfortable in the first place. So, yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you guys so much thank for coming so out. Much. Thank you so much. What an honor to have so many of you. Thank you. Grab a glass of wine and You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.